science. My garden this year is a jumbled up kind. My cow peas and daisies are all intertwined. My botanist friend had me plant them just so She's collecting the data that may help her show How a good mix of plants brings more insects afield And maybe more bugs means a healthier yield And I jumped at the chance to take part in her plan Hello dear listeners, we are coming to you today from the nation's capital And whilst in DC we decided to find a, a local scientist Local enough, I guess, in the sense that she's from the University of Maryland. Uh, welcome to our little recording. Andrea Wiggins, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So the way we normally start off is by asking our speaker to introduce themselves, what they studied, and how they ended up in their current field. Okay, so it's a sort of um, circuitous route that it seems a few of us take uh, to find the right kind of match to what we get passionate about, but I... Let's see, how far back should I go? As <laughs> far back as you like. So when I had to draw a picture of myself for second grade, I was assured <laughs> by the nuns at my school that I could be both a nun and a scientist if I really wanted to when I grew up. So my seventh grade self-portrait was as a non-scientist. And I ditched <laughs> part of that plan, but you know, kept with the, with the science all the way through. And I was probably in the earlier wave of women um, getting some of the girls in STEM uh, initiatives. So had a number of kind of like enrichment opportunities and close encounters with science sort of programs that I was able to take advantage of when I was young, which really kind of uh, reinforces the interest and, and fosters that. So I went to college like many of us do, and I didn't know what the heck to do with myself. So I studied math because there was something really sexy about the notion of the language of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't the most practical thing in the world in as much as like the kinds of jobs you can get with just a math degree. It's a little bit constrained, and they just didn't really seem to fit. So. I actually got a job with AmeriCorps instead um, that was completely unrelated to my degree. And I did volunteer coordination for a year for a nonprofit adult literacy agency and then worked in a couple of other nonprofits for a few years, um, which was a real eye opener in terms of how things work in the world, mm-hmm. um, how volunteerism works, um, you know, how these different sectors kind of interact um, organizationally. Um, so I got quite a meta perspective just from the jobs that I had in those organizations. and. At the time, my husband was doing his um, master's in library science at the University of Michigan, and he and his friends kind of nudged me and said, you know, there's this human-computer interaction program that might be interesting to you. And I was, you know, at the time, like, baffled by how much I saw people struggling with technology. I was like, this isn't that difficult, right? Um, But obviously it is, Mm -hmm. because people were having a hard time doing things like clearing the cookies from their browser cache, which was perpetually an issue for one of my bosses, right? (laughs) And, you know, back in the day when you had one email account for the whole organization and you had to print off the messages and carry them around to people's email boxes, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. So, you know, it was revolutionary to introduce individual email accounts in an arts organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, So I got into the HCI program at Michigan and pretty quickly um, started dabbling with research. And that was partly just I got exposed to the right things at the right time, had the right opportunities. I did my master's thesis on peer prestige and hiring in academic networks. So basically looking at what the interdisciplinary um, hiring patterns were among these 
colleges and schools of information, which are sort of an explicitly interdisciplinary space. So there's no good way to track and rank and, you know, sort of understand kind of an emergent academic discipline. So that's what I did for my master's, and it got me into a PhD program at Syracuse University um, in information science and technology, which is, again, interdisciplinary, um, rooted in like information systems, um, organizational behavior and management, um, with a great deal of influence from library science and um, scientific communication scholarly communication. So like altogether, my emphasis ended up coming around to data and open collaboration. Although we didn't even call it open collaboration when I started working on it because there were only a few instances of these open things mm -hmm. and not so much that we would call it a class of a thing. Um, yep. Cause it was just, there was open source software and we were just hearing about open science, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, dial back, I don't know, almost yeah. 10 years now, right? And so, um, so you were at the forefront of this. I, I got in early. I had good timing, and I think good keywords on some of my papers. You know, <laughs> I, I attribute a lot of it to to just having the right way of expressing things um, and the right timing, um, but also a lot of hard work. So, you know, the time rolled around when my PhD advisor was like, "So, what are you going to do your dissertation on?" And I'm quaking because I have no idea, right? And I knew I didn't want to do open source software development because I'd been working on that, and as much as I enjoyed it and found it fascinating it's also not a very pro-female community in general mm -hmm. and um, I kind of knew what sort of uphill battle I would be facing if I decided to focus my research on open source software development and it just wasn't what I wanted to deal with yep. for the dissertation at that point in my life and it just happened that we came across um, a mention on a slide from the Office of Cyber Infrastructure at the National Science Foundation which is a big fancy word to say, you know, technical things that help us do science, right? <laughs> um, and they had like, here's where we think things are going to like expand in the future. Interesting things coming down the pike, right? And citizen science was on there. And so we like flipped through those slides and I kind of went, wait, that, that looks interesting. And my advisor was like, so what is it? I was like, I don't know. I think I know what it is, but let me like figure it out. So he sent me to read for a week and I came back. I said, there's really something here. I can't tell you what, but there's something really interesting here. Um, and basically, you know, long story short, the timing was right to connect with the people at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology right as the citizen science movement in the U.S. was really exploding from the standpoint of, like, groups and organizations adopting this as a research method. So mm -hmm. it was just, like, really good timing and a good confluence of the right people and opportunities and, you know, kind of went from there. Okay. So you've just mentioned three very different things, and yep. <laughs> somehow, all of a sudden, this is all part of your current research. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So you've got ornithology, you've got citizen science, mm -hmm. and then you've got all the kind of data analysis that goes with the two things. Right, right. So I actually am more of a social scientist or a computer scientist, depending on you know who I'm talking to, basically. Uh -huh. And so it's like the human end of computing is computer-supported cooperative work and human-computer computer interaction, some of that is understanding the context in which technologies are used, mm -hmm. right? Technology is basically the fundamental thing making citizen science explode. Um, it is the thing that is like lowering the costs of production so low that way more researchers and way more people can consider participating in this. And so it kind of makes sense that at least one technology researcher should be looking at that a little more closely. Yeah. So where does the ornithology part come in? So that was a... A lucky break, I guess. Um, so I connected with the p 
people at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology because I was at Syracuse University, which is about an hour away from Ithaca, New York, where mm -hmm. the Lab of Ornithology is. And they had been kind of, you know, basically North American leaders in citizen science for a good 20 years. Um, the person who coined the term, one of the two people who coined it in the same year, right, is at the Lab of Ornithology. So I managed to arrange a postdoc with Data One. Um, which is the Data Observation Network for Earth and focuses on data services and education for researchers. Um, so it was combining data management with citizen science and it was like hosted by the Lab of Ornithology. Mm -hmm. But I actually knew nothing about birds when I started doing the citizen science stuff right. at all. You know, they say the average American knows about a dozen species. Mm -hmm. um, so I was probably right around there, maybe a little bit better, um, but certainly no more than 20, right? Yep. <laughs> and then, um, when I was picking case studies for my dissertation, um, because I had already started building bridges with the Lab of Ornithology, um, I included one of their projects as a case study, and there were a few I could have chosen, but I picked eBird partly because it was the most clearly like tech-mediated and tech-intensive um, mm -hmm. environment. It also had like it's the favored child, so to speak, in terms of its popularity as a program. So there was a lot of lot going for it in terms of um, being able to study it and having access to the right people and being able to spend the time with it. So I actually taught myself birding mm -hmm. um, from like zero, and that's like the hardest possible way to do it. Yep. Like social learning is way better <laughs> in most yeah. cases, but I just spent hours with field guides and hours in the field and hours with the audio CDs. And my life list is now just over 480 species. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the three citizen science projects that I was involved in for my dissertation research, eBird is the one I still participate in, albeit much less frequently at this point because faculty mm -hmm. job just kind of takes time. Yeah. So it's, I suppose it's similar to David in the sense that he comes from a, an engineering, mechanical background mm -hmm. and a computer scientist. Mm -hmm. And now he knows probably a lot more about cancer than I do. Yeah, so the, it's one of those interesting spaces where I get to learn a lot about different sciences all the time. Depends on which project I'm working with, you mm -hmm. know, at any given uh, time. I might be talking with heliophysicists and, you know, astrophysicists and, you know, kind of you name it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the EPA folks have been very welcoming and happy to have um, perspectives on how to make this work well for them. So in this area, there's an incredible amount of energy and interest mm -hmm. around citizen science. So I guess people are starting to become accustomed to this term citizen science, but can you explain what it actually sure. is? So it is a term that came up um, in the 80s. Um, it was developed actually by two different people on different sides of the Atlantic at the same time, um, but they had different nuances and meaning. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is it's a form of scientific collaboration that involves members of the public as core contributors, not as subjects, but as, um, say you could think of them as like assistants or technicians or collaborators in some sense. Um, so. It is science that cannot be done without public participation. Mm -hmm. Now, technically, some of the stuff can be done without the public. It's just not feasible to, yep. right? You can't get to the right scale. You can't get to the right locations. Mm -hmm. You can't monitor on private property yeah. unless you have private citizens doing it. Um, so it's basically, I, ha I hate to use the term crowdsourcing in this way, but mm -hmm. it is a sort of crowdsourcing of research. Now that crowd can be really small and it can be really local and it can involve no technical systems. Yep. Um, so it's a space that is incredibly diverse as well. So we have like bottom up grassroots 
um, usually social environmental justice groups um, focused on environmental quality issues um, and other localized concerns. And then we have really massive scale crowdsourced, unquestionably crowdsourcing projects um, like the Zooniverse platform, which has become pretty well known, has spun off a number of discoveries and is now a host to a whole score of other projects using their technology for image classification and transcription by distributed volunteers over the internet. So these massive data sets that are in image form, which is really difficult to work with, computationally has to be transformed by a human into something workable yep. and so they do the first pass the gold standard as they call it in machine learning and um, AI as the human coded data and then down the road that can be used to train computer vision so that the human um, effort is no longer needed mm -hmm. but we have to have a massive amount of coded data for the machine learning to ever work and yeah. that's why it's not practical for the most part except in these cases yeah I think anyone who's listened to the last few podcasts will realize that there is certainly a converging theme. Like we've got multiple scientists working in very different fields and yet all of them will have mentioned kind of data science and artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. machine learning. Um, so in your specific case, I mean, because you're getting all this data from so many people, how do you deal with that? Because I mean, we, we have a lot of trouble as neuroscientists, for example, we record from a few cells we have what we call an N, which is number of observations of maybe 10. Mm -hmm. And we do our stats on that. In your case, I assume it's a little bit bigger than that. So just to clarify, I don't actually run any citizen science projects myself, okay. right? But I do get to partner pretty mm -hmm. closely with them, including you know being included on the team that does the analysis. So we, in this case, actually refers to a bunch of different teams that I've been part of that worked with citizen science data. Okay. So there's a wide range of ways that we basically ensure quality. Um, and try to get to you know the right amount of data for the trade-offs in terms of like messiness um, and a lot of them actually mirror the same techniques that would be used in conventional science mm -hmm. it's the same fundamental validation techniques um, so expert review is super common um, having people do data entry but then send in the paper data sheet they collected on in the field to ensure against transcription errors is common um, for anything that's image-based, um, having repetition to consensus is mm -hmm. pretty much like the go-to uh, mechanism because you can be pretty certain fairly quickly as to how reliable the classifications are. And so it really depends on the specifics of the science. Yeah. And that's actually kind of the beautiful thing is you can kind of point directly to the science and say, well, look at what all the rest of the science in that area is. It's a variation on that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's usually adjusted because to address the fact that there's a larger number of hands on the data. So any adjustments may have to do with, you know, some percentage spot checking, for example, yep. um, just to verify that things look feasible. Um, the eBird project that I worked on with my dissertation and during my postdoc is actually way up the curve in terms of the sophistication of the technological tools that they're using. Mm -hmm. So they have a dynamically generated checklist of birds that you might see given the time and place based on the historical baseline data. Um, so they know approximately how many of what kind might be there if there's historical data. And so they give you a checklist that's customized to that from the start. So you're far less likely to report things that are out of season um, because it's, it requires a couple extra steps to do that. You can still do it if there's a true exception. You can, you can record it, but it takes extra steps that would deter most people from actually doing it. And then the system can then check the data against historical totals and then anything that um, is kind of out of season or out of scale 
is algorithmically flagged and it makes you confirm, yes, I really meant to enter that and give mm-hmm. some details about what the situation was, you know, what you saw. Then it goes to the human experts and basically all of those steps refine it so that as few of those validation um, efforts are being made as possible because uh, in migration season, it's an incredible amount of data, millions of data points a month. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have a bottleneck building up because it's a pretty big problem pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so the humans will then look at the records and based on extensive local knowledge will make a judgment about the likelihood that your sighting is correct. Now, it is a likelihood judgment mm-hmm. at that point. They're leveraging a great deal of expertise. I've heard, I've like in exchanges with these editors, have seen that they will look up weather forecasts and meteorological conditions and you know all kinds of other prior records to verify whether or not the sighting was likely. So mm-hmm. they're actually drawing on a ton of other information sources, not just their expertise and experience. Yeah. Um, so then you have basically an email conversation with them where they say, hey, by the way, any other details about this? And I found that to be incredibly valuable from a learning perspective because inevitably they like point out some detail of like how to identify a swan properly that I hadn't clued in on yet mm-hmm. and would have been the thing if I had remembered to look for that when I was in the field. Yep. And, you know, knowing that I didn't look for that when I was in the field, their suggestion of the thing that had been observed there already <laughs> right, <laughs> seemed like a pretty logical choice. And so then I would just change my records so that it had the species that was much more likely to be the one that was actually present. And mm-hmm. I reported some things that they may not have agreed with, but it's like, well, you get it as good as you can get it, right? Yep. And in fact, the fascinating thing with citizen science is a lot of people are worried about like the data quality from the contributors. Uh-huh. Actually, what I hear from project uh, organizers is that they have to coax the data out of people because people are worried that they're going to screw up the science. Yeah. So they're actually the participants tend to be more conservative um, than researchers are mm-hmm. when it comes to those things. And this is what I was going to ask you about, actually, because I suspect a lot of people don't realize how much they know and mm-hmm. they feel this is this is obviously a very common complaint. We've been discussing this amongst ourselves with our friend Hui Li, who's here today as well. It's this idea that you have these um, elite groups of scientists. And I think under the right circumstances, I would hope we can all admit that we don't know a certain thing. Uh, so we were just talking to... Um, Tegan McMahon, who was mm-hmm. our previous speaker, and she works on a fungal infection in amphibians. Mm-hmm. And she regularly goes to Costa Rica where she realizes that she is not the expert there. She right. has to ask the locals for information because they know what happens when and where. Just called traditional ecological knowledge in yes. the ecology field. I've picked up a lot of ecology lingo <laughs> over the years. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. So do you find that they often know some incredible details that you wouldn't even have considered? Absolutely. So there's a couple of things that I think are um, at play when you start engaging a larger participant base. Um, so you get people who aren't blinded. Um, they don't have scientific blinders on. They're not mm-hmm. overtrained to miss things. So one of the best discoveries, like poster child discovery, was Henny's Vorwerp, which was an astronomical object discovered by a Dutch school teacher mm-hmm. in the Galaxy Zoo project. And she just kind of asked, what is this thing? It looks 
a little weird. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing no astronomer would have looked at twice. Yep. It ends up being one of like the highest energy emitting things out there. And mm-hmm. they got Hubble time to study it, um, which is a big deal for astrophysicists. So this would not have happened if a you know PhD researcher had been looking at the data. Yeah. It took somebody who you know, didn't have those preconceptions and assumptions who was open to saying, what is this? Yeah. Um, which many of us, when we're so hyper-trained and, you know, treated as an expert all the time, start to get a little overconfident um, yeah. of ourselves. I mean, it happens. So, right. So that's one effect. So that's just like novel eyes mm-hmm. on, on the problem. The other one, I think, is the depth of knowledge that people have about their surroundings, um, the place they live in, um, the patterns that they've seen unfold over their lifetimes, their local populations, things like that, is far deeper than might initially recognize. Um, And this has been one of the other kind of triumphs of citizen science is sometimes the exchange between the members of the public and the researchers opens up new research questions that the scientists hadn't thought of Mm -hmm. that are far more germane and interesting um, than any preconceived questions that they would have come to the field with um, and might actually address some real needs um, of the local people too. So Mm -hmm. there's incredible attention right now in the citizen science professional community, by which I mean basically people who work professionally with citizen science as part of their job. and in the how we develop projects that really give people opportunity to have a rich experience at multiple levels of the research method and process. Um, and so we've kind of had this crowdsourcing model where it's like one size fits all for a while. And we're starting to evolve into more complex structures now that we've got, you know, enough uh, foundation in the basics, we can start doing much more interesting things. So I think there's really going to be some interesting uh, new novel developments coming like still unlike what we've seen yet and I'm like every time I turn around there's something new that kind of blows my mind a little bit because Mm -hmm. I just never would have imagined it especially you know eight years ago when I first started uh, looking at this okay so Huili would like to know um, do your citizen scientists contribute to the hypothesis so coming up with the ideas behind the science or do they just come in with the more practical aspects so it really depends on the project again and the kind of style of project um so some of the more bottom-up grassroots community-based projects absolutely have people involved in hypothesis developments and it might not be in as formal a sense as you would see in a lab setting but it's absolutely hypothesis development as anyone else would recognize it um just in an informal space I would say that's probably happens more often than we know because we don't know how many of these groups there are and it's all over the place. Um, But that tends to be about what's going on around me in my local environment that might be harming health or well-being of people around me and my community. In terms of anything that's the really large-scale projects, I don't know of anything that does hypothesis development at scale right now, partly because it's really hard. Um, mm-hmm. So it's easy to get lots and lots of people to classify images. It's really hard to get lots and lots of people to develop and converge on a hypothesis. So my sense of it is if we use the right set of tools and processes, we could probably do it. Um, there are some really cool things being developed for e-democracy processes that um, are about uh, democratic deliberation um, that focus on collecting a wide range of ideas, summarizing them in useful ways, and kind of floating the cream to the top. And so I think if leveraged in the right ways, we could use some of those tools and approaches to do really large-scale hypothesis development. 
Um, the run, risk it runs is, um, you know, kind of that there can be, there's a certain naivete that you can get if you don't know the foundational underlying science in mm -hmm. great depth. And so it would need to be done in a way that made sure not to be patronizing and colonialist to the contributors, but also made sure we weren't overlooking the existing science um, yeah. and recreating things. So figuring out how to moderate that interaction in a, you know, in an open and productive way is, that's not easy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so David asks, most if not all citizen science seems to be about data collection. Uh, is there any effort where people are involved in analysis? So it depends on what you consider to be analysis, and I'm one of the only people who's going to start with it depends. Um, so there are a number of projects that use human cognition um, to do transcription and image classification and contact extraction from images, mm -hmm. right? which is a cognitively difficult process that we need human beings for. Yep. Most researchers are going to tell you that that's not always analysis. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. The classification is a form of analysis, but it's not analysis in the sense of like running the stats on the data set after it's all come together, right? A lot of projects actually enable data querying and access for participants so they can play with the data to the extent that they want. And that's why some people do it, is they want access to data, and they like playing with it and trying to dig through it and understand something. Um, but in terms of doing analysis at the level of, like, say, the statistical analyses on your water sampling, for example, there are relatively few that do that, largely because the demands of science are such that we need certain criteria met, and there aren't very good ways to open up participation for the analysis process to a larger participant base. Yeah. Um, and there is basically the kind of basic knowledge that you need to do that isn't necessarily as widely distributed in the population. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean you can't get people up to that level, but that's a lot of overhead. Yeah. Um, so there's one project that I think does an amazing job of this. It's a group out of Pennsylvania called ALARM. They're the Alliance for Aquatic and Resource Monitoring, something along those lines. But mm -hmm. ALARM out of Pennsylvania does a great job of training community groups to do their own research design and their own analysis of their own data. So they really make it very much about the community-generated data and mm -hmm. the community-generated science. And there's some pushback on the citizen science label, which has kind of come down as like the winner-takes-all label for a lot of things that have similar names like anybody interested in the phenomenon should look up volunteer monitoring as well because that's been going for far longer than anything called citizen science yeah. right some of the pushback is from people who are in the sort of community science um, perspective and don't want everything to be represented as top-down so I'm always mm -hmm. pretty careful to you know mention that there is a whole range of forms of participation and so there's probably something out there that engages people in analysis to a much greater degree that I haven't run into mm -hmm. because especially the things where they work at the scale where that's a feasible thing to do are also the ones that are hardest to find online they're the hardest to study they're the hardest to access so I think there's a huge gap in what we know about citizen science as a phenomenon simply because there are a lot of groups for which it doesn't make sense to kind of broadcast what they're doing beyond the local level yeah and so you have to be local to be able to work with them and understand what they're doing okay um, and another question he had, which I think probably came from the 
the astronomical phenomenon he was mm-hmm. talking about, and he says, for me, SETI at home ah, yes. is a best-known and more successful example of citizen science. So for those that don't know, what is SETI at home? So SETI at Home is one of the best-known um, volunteer computing projects out there. It searches for signs of extraterrestrial life um, in the universe with radio telescopes and uses people's home computers to analyze the data that comes back um, because it's an enormous amount of data. Is it really the best example? So um, that's an interesting one because it's somewhat debated. Um, there are people, I can tell you exactly which people in the citizen science community include volunteer commuting com- computing under citizen science and which ones say that volunteer computing is not citizen science. Mm -hmm. And it hinges on this distinction of how actively engaged someone is. The vast majority of um, Boink users or um, the volunteer computing contributors basically download something and that's it. And that's not very engaged. So when you're basically loaning your computer's processor time to deal with really large-scale analyses in a distributed fashion, you're not the one actually doing the work. What you're contributing is your hardware. Um, I look at contributions of time and effort, human time and effort, as a distinguishing feature. However, it's been brought to my attention that there is quite the avid community of overclockers and people who tinker with their hardware to speed up the analysis and they are competitive as all get out apparently the bronies are really something in the volunteer computing space they are contenders and goodness those people take it to a different level um they take it to the level of the kind of engineering that goes into sciences in other spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Because in plenty of sciences, people are building their own hardware and their own software as well. So those folks do take it to the level where I would say, yep, that starts to fall into the citizen science bucket, especially if we broaden our thinking to include engineering as well. If you're just installing software and then, you know, walking away, I'm never going to consider that citizen science. Some people might, but I personally don't. It's contributing, but it's not. It's contributing in a different way. And crowdfunding is another thing that comes up as a related phenomenon. Mm -hmm. People are contributing money and demonstrating interest. Um, But again, that's a fundamentally different resource to be contributing than your time and effort and intellect. Everybody has some modicum of time, effort, intellect they can provide if the conditions are correct. Mm -hmm. But not everybody has the computing hardware. Not everybody has the money to support the science that they want to see happen. Um, there are actually a number of other related pro- programs like um, protein folding, um, which mm-hmm. takes a lot of computational energy as well, and there's a whole slew of them now. So you can actually sign up and kind of contribute your computing time to whichever science most tickles your fancy. Um, so we've talked a little about the advantages of citizen science, but what are the limitations? Oh, yes. So. In this era of interesting politics around science, um, some people have this hopeful look in their eye that citizen science can sort of make up the gap between federal science and let me tell you, it can cover some of that space, but it cannot replace our professional scientists. It is a complement, not a replacement. Right? It lets us scale things up. It provides an indicator, a canary in the coal mine of when you need mm-hmm. to call in the professionals for like the really nitty gritty analysis, but it's not a replacement. Um, the things that it seems to be best for are things where you need access to private property and you can't get that otherwise, mm-hmm. where you need um, observations of the natural world over time and or space. Um, where you need human cognition for analysis processes um, that can be chunked out 
in a reasonable fashion for people. Yep. Um, so those are the things that we've seen work really well so far. Um, people are good at mapping things. So mapping the optical neuron is one of the projects happening with iWire, which is done in a game setting. And it's apparently like very, very, very engaging. Mm -hmm. um, like, well, the term I've heard used is addictive, but I don't want to be <laughs> accusatory. <laughs> um, and it's really fascinating what they're able to do with that. And it's just a different technology that's allowing people to exercise skills they already have um, to a beneficial end. However, um, you will get holes in the data. Um, there are times when it is hard to tell what is going on there. Is this a true outlier or is this an error? Um, and this is the kind of thing that the scientists learn how to address kind of through the trial and error of mm -hmm. like you do with doing science basically. I think anything that relies on a lot of expensive equipment isn't going to work if it has to be hyper precise measurement, if it has exhaustible resources that are hard to get, if it is dangerous mm -hmm. for people. And dangerous is relative. Yeah. Um, so the National Park Service apparently worked with rock climbers to survey lichens. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous but you, they got the right people to do it, right? Mm -hmm. It would be really dangerous to send me out <laughs> to study lichens, right? But you get a rock climber out there and they're fine, yeah. right? So if it's gonna put life and limb in jeopardy, people are hesitant to send volunteers out for mm -hmm. it. One of the most entertaining warnings I ever saw on a citizen science project is for zombie watch. Um, <laughs> and it's, it was basically a warning that, by the way, bees could sting you. <laughs> It's like, okay, well, let's not over-assume on common sense. Um, yes. But that was a pretty entertaining uh, disclaimer. For those who are looking at the photos from this particular podcast, you will see that Andrea is wearing a March for Science t-shirt. Um, actually, our parent company is one of the proud partners of the March, and um, we'll be working in many of our cities with the local marches since we have our Taste of Science Festival in those cities. Um, and for us, it's kind of important because we care about the idea that people should be able to interact with science and scientists. And I think this is one of the big problems that we have is making that immediate connection. Um, so, of course, we're going to come across as elitist if everything we do is behind closed doors. Absolutely. And this is directly related to the kind of stuff that you do because mm -hmm. you speak to people on a daily basis. But... Um, so for you, why is the march important? Well, it's just hard for me to understand a world in which we don't take empirical data into consideration for decision making. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the empirical data that we need for decision making about national priorities, such as, you know, feeding people, transportation, I mean, you name it, right? That comes from our federal agencies. They have been repeatedly shown to be the best investment dollar for dollar that the American people make over and over. So the data production and the science production by our federal agencies is incredibly valuable. And if nothing else, that needs to be uh, retained to the extent we possibly can because we all benefit from it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just indirect. We don't see that everything goes back to the census surveys and the various um, EPA actions that keep things, you know, habitable in DC because this is actually the worst air quality in the East Coast, more or less, is in DC, right? And it would be worse if it weren't for the EPA, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, like, to me, it's just really important that we continue doing decision making in a way that is defensible and, you know, that doesn't make us the laughing stock of the rest of the world as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, when I was in Singapore recently, it was like the only thing people could talk about. And I was like, yeah, I know it's crazy right now. Yeah. 
But I think yeah. being directly involved in doing the science is gives people a different level of understanding and insight into the process, the debates, um, the way knowledge is constructed and co-constructed, um, that it's not set in stone, um, that, you know, everything is basically turtles on top of turtles, yep. right? And it's hypotheses all the way down. Um, yep. So one of the most fascinating results I ever saw in research on citizen science was that it can, in fact, shake people's faith in science mm -hmm. because they realize it's not as like pristine and perfect of a thing as they had imagined it to be. Yeah. But I don't think, you know, the data collection took into consideration, did people find that a liberating thing to know? Was it empowering to them to realize that science is as flawed as any other human endeavor? Yep. Right? And so we work really hard to try to reduce the flaws, but that doesn't mean there aren't any. Yeah. Right? And so I want people to see that it's just as messy as any other line of work. Mm -hmm. um, and also just see the sort of like the degree of joy and excitement that I see when people get up to their elbows and doing the work of science. It's yep. like it just kind of transcends boundaries. And so I want everybody to have access to that kind of experience. Yeah. And I guess the, there are different triggers for different people. So I was talking to my postdoc colleague who said that he's obviously working in health sciences like me. And his dad, after years and years of not showing any interest whatsoever, was in the doctor's office because his wife was there for some reason. He looked up and he saw something, some mention of the gallbladder. And now all of a sudden he's like, well, what does the gallbladder do? Where is that? Uh, so you never know what the trigger is going to be. And now he's devouring anatomy books and, and his son's like, yeah, dad, this is cool. And it has been for the entire time I've been working on this, mm -hmm. thanks. Um, but I'm wondering if people had the opportunity to do some form of citizen science. Is there like a central website, repository somewhere where they can look up projects that they might be able to contribute to? Absolutely. I couldn't pay you for that prompt. Um, <laughs> so the place to go to if you want to get involved in a project that's already out there is SciStarter.com. It is like the go-to and it is heavily North American dominated. However, it's got global projects and is always adding more. It is, as far as I know, the most comprehensive um, database and it's really targeted towards people who want to get involved and has like filters based on say location or what kind of science it is or whether it's kid friendly or whether it's family friendly. Um, so it's really geared for finding the right match of experiences. For people who are interested in developing a project themselves, maybe because they want to address local issues or um, develop their own inquiry, there are a lot of DIY science things forming that I don't they're on a continuum with citizen science, right? Mm -hmm. They're not as collectivist as a lot of citizen science is, um, but there are hacker spaces and maker spaces that are related on roads. And then if you really like want to develop a project to address an issue, um, citizenscience.org is a great resource site um, for the kind of nuts and bolts of how to start a project, some of the things to take into consideration, um, some of the things that we know work and don't work. Mm -hmm. um, so depends on what level of people want to access this. Um, but if you just want a curated science experience, SciStarter is a great place to go. Okay. Can you just repeat for us the website if people want to get involved in citizen science? Yes, it is SciStarter.com, S-C-I-Starter.com. Okay. So anyone who's interested should go along to that website and have a look. And uh, we will thank Andrea very much for her time today. It's been really cool to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been Ooh. fun. Okay. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye.
first field work trip. I don't know how much planning time I gave myself for this, but it was pretty spur of the moment. And I like told my PhD advisor, I'm like, I'm going off to do field work and <laughs> a story, right? And he was like, okay. I was um, working with a group that was doing phenology monitoring, and that's natural life cycles of plants and animals um, in national parks in the east. And so I went to Acadia National Park and Boston Harbor Islands, which were two of the monitoring sites that they had. And the third site was the White Mountain. So when I pulled into Acadia, there were all these emergency sirens in the background as I'm checking into my campsite, which is really weird. And the ranger's like, oh, sorry, we have people on a rescue. Um, something, you know, just, just happened. And so I'm checking in and like, there's all this emergency vehicle noise, which is really weird out in someplace like Acadia National Park. Um, so I get my tent set up, I go into town, cute little bar harbor, go to get my first lobster roll, super excited about that, mm -hmm. and the, the little joint that I went into is handing over this huge pile of submarine sandwiches and pizzas to a rescue, um, a rescue person, and he was taking them to the rescue crews on the beach, and what had happened was there was a really, really big rogue wave um, that had come and had pulled in several people who had been on the rocks where oh, the wow. rangers had told them not to be. Um, that, that never matter, matters in retrospect. Um, but the rain, rangers are not allowed to physically restrain people. So, you know, you're kind of at your own mercy there. And it is a wilder place than we think of, right? A seven-year-old girl never came back. Um, so what was fascinating, well, that's like a horrible thing. Like, that's the backdrop here. Um, the, the conversations with some of the rangers were just kind of jaw-dropping, and they said, like, the Park Loop Road for us is just like in Jaws. It's like, don't close the Park Loop Road. It's like, don't close the beach, because it has such huge local impact. Mm -hmm. Well, they actually had to close the Park Loop Road because the wave threw boulders across the road and actually, like, washed over it in places. So it kind of required some temporary shutdown. Um, so that was just surreal and kind of crazy to start with. Um, and then I made my way down to Boston Harbor Islands and... That was that's just a fascinating place because you have got perfect cell signal and no fresh water, right? Um, you can hear the ice cream truck across the South Bay, um, but you've got a composting toilet. Um, so it's a really interesting environment. And it must have been like a crazy hurricane season that year because basically I got evacuated from the island a day early because they were like, we will not be responsible for you if you stay on the island after the last ferry out. And I was like, oh my God, I had an email, a text message and like a voicemail from the state parks saying, get the heck out. Um, but the rangers on the island hadn't heard anything. <laughs> So I'm telling the rangers, I'm like, here's these alerts I'm getting. They're like, oh, crap, do we have to take down the yurt? I'm like, do they have to collapse all their pa like belongings up and like take off on a moment's notice? And they were like really, really out of it because even just a small ferry right away, it's like being out in rural nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. So it was just a whole bunch of things that were really unusual. But during that trip when I was in Acadia, I decided one morning that I was going to do some hiking before my interview with this parks volunteer coordinator so you know I plot out my route I figure out how I can get the shuttle back to my car so I can get to the interview everything looks like it'll work had a great trip up the south face trail which is beautiful and long and you know when I got to the top they were like wow you made good time 
I was like, oh, thanks. Like, I didn't realize that was a good time, right? So I went down the West Face Trail. Anyone who has ever climbed Cadillac Mountain knows that you do not go down the West Face Trail. <laughs> um, it is one mile, but it is strenuous. And when they rate things as strenuous in that park, it means really, really strenuous. So at one point in this largely vertical descent, basically I slipped on algae on the um, granite and went head over heels and I landed on my neck oh, a wow. few feet down. And if I hadn't been using poles, I don't know how much further down I would have gone because there was poles that actually arrested the fall and they had some nice scars for a long time as a result. So like, so yeah, it's a wilder world out there than we might think it is at yeah. times. measured their size. I've counted the cutworms and spiders and flies. My botanist friend takes the data all down. She'll compare it with gardens from all over town. And maybe the numbers will show us the way toward gardening well without pesticide spray. But whether or not her study bears any fruit, it has still been a worthwhile pursuit. Cause I'm a citizen, scientist. I'm a citizen, scientist. Joining the planet-wide dance. You've just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. Sift through tiny fossils from mastodon times I could try to fold some proteins with folded online In the great backyard bird count I could help keep track of birds With Santi at home I could search for alien words And for more exciting projects I could start working on I'll visit SCIStarter.com I'll visit SCIStarter.com Cause I'm a citizen, scientist, citizen, scientist, joining the planet-wide dance that helps human knowledge advance. And for more exciting projects I could start working on, I'll visit SCIStarter.com. I'll visit SCIStarter.com. I'll visit SCIStarter.com. Science!